Welcome back to season two of Stern Chats. We have a very special guest today, S.D. Goldschmidt, on the show. Frank, want to get us started? Yes, this is definitely a first for us. Esty is our first CEO on the show. We taped this episode right before she graduated, but now she's an alumni of NYU Stern and helped start a company during her time at school. That's right. Esty was able to leverage her passion for fashion as well as Stern's resources to start ShopDrop. ShopDrop. An app that helps users identify local sample sales close to them. Yes, and actually straight from the ShopDrop website, ShopDrop helps urban fashion lovers discover sample sales so they can wear the brands they love for prices they can afford. Download the app ShopDrop in the App Store today. She's a terrific example of the entrepreneurial spirit that Stern can foster. She also grew up in Russia. Yeah, we get to hear what it's like to set up a Jewish synagogue halfway around the world. So we have a bunch of ground to cover, so let's get right into it. Cool. Cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Ferricchio and Sherry Holt. Welcome to Stern Chats. We're so happy to have Esty Goldschmidt here talking with us. Thank you so much for coming. Super <laughs> exciting to be here and to find out that Stern has a secret room in UC120. Yeah. You know, that is a common theme among all of our guests and, you know, my, myself included, which is where is the fabled UC120? You know, like nobody knows. It's like yeah. a nested within a room within a room. You know, platform three and a quarter. It, it, yeah. It is. Oh my gosh, that's such a good Harry analogy. Potter reference. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to like swipe in multiple times. Yes. That's true. There's more security for this room than for most spaces at NYU Stern. Mm-hmm. But for people that aren't at Stern, can you give us like a 20 second background on where you've worked and what you're doing? Sure. I came to Stern in 2015 to pursue my MBA and move into the entrepreneurship sector. Before that, I worked at Estee Lauder. And one interesting fact, I grew up in Moscow, Russia. Oh, we'll have to ask you about that. That's interesting. Okay, so I'm sorry. uh, Name aside, you know, what, what, uh, what industry and focus do you have? So actually, now that I've declared graduation, they make you choose a major. And I don't know if I'm the only one, but I didn't know my majors. I would just keep on changing them on my resume, depending on the jobs I applied for. Fair enough. Um, but I just did declare my major, so now I know what it is. It's marketing strategy and leadership and changing organizations. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Very, yeah. yeah. yeah I'm very fancy. excited about that changing organizations part. Absolutely. So what is it about the changing organizations that you'd like to do? I'd like to lead them. <laughs> Lead and change. Lead and change. No, but basically I feel like we're at a very exciting time um, in the world, especially from a marketing perspective. The luxuries of today are going to be the necessities of tomorrow. And the things we're going to think about in 20 years or even six years and say, oh, my God, I used to drive my car by actually sitting at a wheel. (laughs) Uh, And that, that presents a crazy amount of business opportunities. And I feel like people who are thinking about them and prepared for them are going to be leading. You know, you're probably right because, I mean, I can remember 20 years ago, we were talking into a phone that had a rope on it. 
Yes. Right? It's a cord. Yes, but <laughs> all right, the cord. But You called it something funny the other day, too. You, you, I think you called it a string. Whatever it is. Am I the second person speaking about the string and the cord? No, no. Wait, you've called it that as well? No. Oh, okay. No, no. Yeah, but tell me. No, I'm just saying that I think what you're saying has tremendous merit because 20 years ago, I would never have considered the fact that nobody of our age group owns the phone with the cord, Sherry. Everyone has a cell phone. So, I mean, that's something you want to focus on. So being an innovator and creating change in organizations in that way? Yes. So there are large companies that have the resources to do what they need to do to become Amazons, to predict needs before consumers know they have them. And, and solve problems that once they're solved, you don't, you don't even know how you lived without it in the first place. I think a good example of that is the Amazon Dash button. When you're running low on uh, detergent or toilet paper, like you just push a button. And before that, it would be this whole anxiety-provoking thing of I have to go to the store, I have to put it on a list. But we never thought of it as a problem. But now that the problem is solved, we recognize the benefits. So I feel like large companies that are selling consumer goods, and that's the industry I come from, aren't necessarily thinking in terms of problems to solve. But it's more, it's still at the, at what I call marketing of the 80s where it's like, what's our competitor doing? And how do we make our ad look better? Rather than really getting to know your consumers better, figuring out what their problems are that they don't even recognize and solving them before other people do. So when you're living your life, now that you are in CPG marketing or consumer product (laughs) goods? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Whoa. For the audience, CPG is consumer product goods. Anyways, so, you know, in your day-to-day life, do you find yourself really thinking in those terms, saying, oh, you know, if only I had X, or if only I could do Y, and does that inspire you for your work? It definitely inspires me. I would say I wish I was that brilliant. I think recognizing a need like that is, is a gift that comes once in a lifetime. It's more I try to be aware and try to spot the problems, but I think where I'm stronger is recognizing when there's a possible solution and then evaluating that and seeing. um, So some people are savants and the rest of us have to work real hard at it. (laughs) That's like with most things in life, though, no? (laughs) What do they say? 10% talent, 90% perspiration? I think that's a a line in an Eminem song. Oh, wow. Eminem yeah. or Eminem? No, that's that's a line in a rap song, okay. I think, actually, that's very popular. Are you going to rap for Oh, actually, I'm sorry. That's a line in a uh, Linkin Park and Jay-Z Because I was going to ask song. you to do Love the Way You Lie. <laughs> <laughs> no, ma'am. No, ma'am. We, we do not sing on this show. Okay. <laughs> we do not sing on this show. Uh, unless it's you singing, because apparently you have a background in singing. It's okay. I'll pass. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll spare you the pain. Oh, gosh. So but, you talk about yeah. the, you know innovation and uh, loving that space and trying to find that next thing. Do you do anything in your current life right now where you're trying to be an innovator? Well, thank you so much for asking. I actually came to Stern because I wanted to be an innovator, and I didn't know how to get there. And I was like, business school is going to do that with me, for me to me. Anyhow, so the first year I got here, my application essay was all about starting my own company. I don't know if any other Sternies feel the same way. If any first year Sternies are listening to this now, I would say follow your heart, as generic as that sounds, because I got swallowed in the investment banking tornado. And it took me actually about two and a half, three months to realize that 
I'm, I'm on a train that's heading in a direction I don't want to be in. So I started looking for internships that were startup related. And, you know, my first few interviews or conversations with people in startups and VCs were really awkward. I remember sitting with this one guy, and he was a CTO of a, an app called Multif. And he was like, well, how can you help us? And I was thinking, well, I can help you with strategy. I can help you with marketing. And he's like, yeah, we're not a corporation. We don't have 82 divisions that have to work together. So I figured that I have to, I don't really know what I'm talking about when it comes to startups. And I wanted an experience that would expose me to the, to the inner works and give me a real feel for what it is. So I ended up applying to a couple of places. And I matched with, that sounds like a medical school. It does sound like medical school. I got accepted. I interviewed. <laughs> whatever. I decided to go to a place called Mass Challenge in Israel, which was a startup accelerator. So the way startup accelerators work, just for people out there who might not know about it, it's a, a four-month program which selects a number of startups, and then it gives them office space and mentorship and advice. And at the end, um, you know, a few of the startups win, let's say, a few hundred thousand dollars. Like a starter kit. Exactly. So, so I spent my summer there. I was on the team of the management working on their marketing strategy. But my innovative piece was I set up marketing hours for the startup. Two hours a week, I would spend officially 15 minutes, but they sometimes span into two-hour sessions with different startups. I would say I developed like really close relationships with about 10 of them. I helped one startup raise their first round of $600,000. Oh, that feels wow. good. It felt really good. And then another um, nonprofit startup, I'm just in love with them. I referred them to a competition, and they won first place, which was 26,000 wow. euros. That's awesome. And oh, it was holy cow. How? What product were they? So they were a startup called Keepers, and it was the founder. He was an engineer at Cisco. And his friend's son had committed suicide, and he left a note. He was bullied. So he decided to start an anti-bullying app, which parents can download onto their children's phone, and their children won't even know it's on the phone, and it barely sucks up any battery. And the idea is it monitors every message, voice, text, WhatsApp, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram. And whenever there's anything potentially negative, the parents receive an alert so that they can deal with it immediately. Um, that is Brilliant. That is fascinating. So. Talk about a need that we didn't even know. Yeah. And the ability to alleviate so much pain. Creating solutions. That is incredible. They're literally that. That's a, so. You must really believe in the product. I, I really do, and also I believe in the two guys who founded it. One of them was a victim of a terrorist attack of a bombing um, when he was a teenager. So very familiar with the. And I just felt like they were very grounded. It's funny, the two founders, they were very aggressive. Like, a lot of people on the management weren't huge fans of them because they would constantly ask for more resources. But I, I love that. I felt like that's, that's the attitude, that's the grit. That they believed in something. Yeah. Right, they had the drive. How were these groups of people brought together? So it was the group in the accelerator and then the companies you were consulting for? Or what was the relationship? Right. No. So the companies I, would cons I was consulting for are, are the startups in the accelerator. At that point, startups are one person, three people. They're they're tiny groups, and they just sit in this open space, and everyone communicates, and it's it's this idea that everyone shares with each other. So there are happy hours every Thursday, and then speakers every day. Um, 
people from VCs, everyone was matched up with mentors. People had different development stages, talk with each other. I need someone for marketing stuff. I need someone for promotional. I need someone for development. And they work with each other. So, so what did you love the most about your experience there? Because that's very different than what you were doing before you showed up working with startups. Oh, yeah. It was extremely different. So to give an example, at Estee Lauder, I probably worked for seven months on a proposal of a project which was recommending that they shift the sampling process from being offered twice a year to the markets to being offered once a year to the market. Now, it's a minor change that ultimately across all the markets would save the company $24 million in the long run, which is a huge change, but it's a ton of work for a tiny cog in the chain. And I felt like at Mass Challenge, there were 48 startups that could potentially change the world, each one in a different way. Um, it, it was also much more emotional. Like there was this one guy, uh, his startup was called Parento. And, and the idea was the only app that wants you to put your phone down. Uh, the idea is to have parents spend more time, time with their children. He had already spent a year and a half. You know, he had children, a family bootstrapping, not taking a salary. And he went to INSEAD, like a very talented guy. And a month ago, I saw him post on LinkedIn how heartbreaking it was to shut the startup down, you know, after raising a round. And, you know, he had hired people. So, so there are those types of things where you really invest your life in it and you bank on it. Um, and, and things also don't work out. So, but, but I feel like the risk-taking um, personalities... It's uh, it's like it's you're like, like on a beaming, roller coaster. talking about it. Yeah. Yes, so that was extremely exciting. And after after I came back from the summer, I knew that I had to be working on a startup. I had I had to have my own project, my own baby that I was growing. I oh. mean, yeah, even even up to this point, you've you know created something really neat. Um, you know your your app, and I would love to talk about that. You know what that experience was like building it, and because I think that's applicable. You know, no, whatever happens. Thing. So we're building it to this day. It's an app called Shop Drop. And to give NYU due credit, I found the founder, Corey, on the NYU website. He was looking to, for someone to help him out with his marketing. And basically, this is how the app started. So Corey had moved to, N uh, to New York. He had noticed that there were all these signs in stores, like there's a sale going on and there's this fashion event. And his attitude was, this is only being marketed to people who are passing this place on the street. However, there are a ton of people who would benefit from that information and would want to go. So he said, why don't I create an app where all those sample sales will be listed? Have you seen it? Okay, so I'm looking at your app right now, and there's some beautiful pictures. And yeah, I can see all the sample sales. And you could click on each one, and it's going to tell you where it is. And then you can click, I want, you, I want to go, and it's going to let you share it with friends or to add it to your calendar. Well, that's incredible. I bet you could save a ton of money just doing just sample sales. Oh, yeah. And so, so basically, one, that was the original app, and it launched in 2014. Um, you know, Corey had a full-time job. This was just a side gig. He's a developer. And TechCrunch picked up on it and Fox News and did a segment. So the downloads blew up. It overloaded the system. There was a ton of scraping of the Internet that Corey had to do and to make sure that the look stayed, um, you know, that it stayed aesthetically pleasing. It was a ton of work. And he shut down the app. And then this September, he was like, I'm giving this another shot. I need a partner. And that was when we connected. And so that's when I officially joined the team. And I brought on, actually, my intern from Mass Challenge from the summer. 
Very nice. Oh, wow. So, so that's that's the team now, and we've come a really long way. We've um, we've built out a website as well that has the same sync, um, that has a blog to help us with SEO. Sorry, what is SEO? Search engine optimization. So the idea is when you search for sample sales or designer clothes on sale in New York City, it would come up immediately. And our vision has very much become we want to take the the consumer who can appreciate brands and upgrade them from Zara and H&M to shop designer clothing, but at a discount. So it requires a bit more research beforehand. You can't go any day. But for example, this top I'm wearing now is $34, but it's originally $298. And what? it's a Marc Jacobs top. You're losing money not getting it at that point. <laughs> so <laughs> that's exactly it. Our idea, it's twofold. Number one, it's expanding the sample sale market because most people don't know when sample sales are happening. Like if you think about it right now in a five like block radius there are six sample sales happening today so there you, you just know that because this is your world <laughs> that's my world. i'm gonna go shopping after <laughs> this actually <laughs> um so we want to expand that market right now i think it's about forty thousand people in new york who are aware and, and on different email lists and know people but we want it to democratize that platform and expand it to a larger audience shop drop sounds like a great idea but even even more than that, it sounds like something that I can't believe hasn't been thought of before. That's a very good point. And I'll tell you the reason it hasn't been thought of before is because it's the only part of the industry that's still completely offline. Everything else you could buy from your phone, from your computer, and retailers are very smart about um, making it an omnichannel experience. However, brands are not too excited about promoting their sample sales because they want consumers buying the new collection at full price. So they just get rid of their sample and stock sales by giving it to the sample sale hosts, putting it on for four days, and just targeting those few people. And, and the people who are running the sample sales have been doing it for 20, 30 years. They have the same people coming in day in, day out. So it's, it's a very established industry for the fashion, know-how people, people who have friends. And it could be bigger. It could be bigger. It could be bigger. Well, you're talking about a completely different skill set than you had at Estee Lauder, which is very a lot of finesse, a lot of attention to detail. This is large risk taking. You know, striving striving ahead when you know you're you're going blind. Can you talk a little bit about that skill set? Yeah. So I think. I think the skill set is uh, has an official term, which is called winging it. <laughs> oh, okay. It's a scientific term. Yes, <laughs> yes it, it has a lot of research on the. Wait, actually, Bob, yeah. are you in the booth? Yeah. Can you Google winging it and see what kind of research we have on that? <laughs> Apparently, it's a scientific term. Very scientific. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, he'll get back to us. I think the risk factor is probably the biggest one, being able to sit with risk, being able to take no for an answer. In When you're working in a large company and you report to the same four people all the time and you're, you know, you're on a constant loop of receiving feedback, you know how to talk to them, uh, when you're in a startup, you're constantly selling your idea. You're selling it to customers, you're selling it to uh, partners, you're selling it to investors, to accelerators, to even to friends. And the amount of time you're going to receive cold responses, nasty responses. It could be, <laughs> could it could be really, uh, you know, devastating. So I think I think the ability to pick yourself up, 
um, sort of be able to extract the useful information that that you can from every meeting and just say, okay, what am I going to do tomorrow that's going to make sure that the outcome will be different? Um, and I think also a bit of a pride of, of feeling like, you know, no, I do believe in this idea. I do have the team to make this work. We're going to keep going. I feel like people come to Stern to learn the language of business, but as you were talking about, there's a whole language of entrepreneurship. Do you feel that Stern has been able to equip you with that language? A hundred percent. I think Stern is actually wonderful at teaching its students how to present and speak about problems. I feel like sometimes I listen to myself and I say, I sound so cool. I have no idea what I just said. (laughs) (laughs) You have very high (laughs) (laughs) self-esteem. I love it. You do that in the mirror every morning as well. Like, I look great. I sound great. Let's face the day. Not to that extreme, but but I, I think it does a really good job of teaching you about the concepts to the point where you use them, and you have to think twice when you're talking to people because you have to realize that they sometimes don't know what you're talking about. And I can give you an example. I was interviewing a student um, in college for an internship for Shop Drop this summer. And I told her, so, so why don't you send me an email with your KPIs for the summer and um, you know what your expectations are, and, and we'll take it from there. What is the KPI? A KPI is a key performance indicator. Good to know. Okay. So basically, it was a really fancy way of saying, what are your goals? So she writes back and she says, to date, my KPIs are around 18 to 20%. And over the summer, I hope they will be at 60%. Oh. And oh, what acronym was she working <laughs> off of? <laughs> like, I don't, like, Google it. Ask me. I'll tell you. I don't know. But, I, but for me, it was a lesson. Get off the the acronym. I mean, when you heard her response, did you think you know I would never have answered that way? And at least I learned how to speak. I, I can. I learned how to respond. I learned the language of business so that I would never have a response quite like that. I think what also what I learned in business school is don't be afraid to admit that you don't know something and don't be afraid to be stupid. So when you're very often when I was interviewing for companies, people would throw around the name of their CEOs and their directors and bosses. Like, I'm supposed to know who that is. And they didn't do it intentionally because for them, that's their entire world. I would do the same thing had I been in their shoes. But it's not horrible for me to say, remind me, who's that person again? And, and what's the relationship sort of within the team or the structure? I think I've become much more comfortable with, with saying when I don't understand something or when something doesn't make sense and people speak uh, you know, about it with real confidence. Sometimes they'll say, you know, from what I'm seeing... You know, the numbers we mentioned so far don't add up to what the total seems to be. What am I missing? Um, I think Stern has done a good job of teaching me how to phrase concerns and and sort of deal with problems in a very diplomatic way. I bet that combined with your tremendous self-esteem is a winning combination. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you wouldn't know if my self-esteem is real, would you? Uh, I get get a sense. I got a radar for these things. Uh, I did my research, at least. So... Tell us a little bit about like your your cultural upbringing and how that has played into your love of entrepreneurship and innovation and creation. Would you mind sharing that with us? Sure. Let's start in 1985. My parents were an interesting couple. Very. My parents are both Jewish and Orthodox. My father is. European and my mom is American and they have been very active and inspired members of the Let My People Go movement to give some background basically in the 80s, basically the entire 70 years of Soviet Russia, Jews weren't allowed to exit Russia 
Um, and there was, you know, significant oppression of freedom, especially freedom of religion, and people were incarcerated and killed for crimes like going to synagogue on the high holidays or eating masa on Pesach. So my parents were very sort of involved in the movement. My grandfather had been going to Russia illegally and smuggling kosher salami and prayer books um, to Russia in the 70s. So when my parents met, they and um, the Iron Curtain started coming down with the perestroika, they were like, we're going to Russia. And in, in 1989, they did, and my mother was expecting me. So they had spent a year just working with, with the Jews who were leaving Russia. And my mother says that when she was there, the question was, when are you leaving? It was understood that everyone wants to get out. It's funny, my parents went without speaking a single word of Russian. And it was, it was Soviet. I do not know how they did it. To make a long story short, they ended up staying. I was born after my first year, um, my parents' first year in Russia, and my parents only thought they would stay for one more year. So they gave me a Russian name, Tatiana, um, in my passport, and it was meant to be a souvenir of the fact that I spent my first year of life in Russia. But I ended up growing up there, you know, spending my first 16 years there, and I could definitely see myself going back. It's very much part of who I am today. So in 1993, my father became chief rabbi of Moscow. My mother opened the day school, you know, preschool through high school. Chief um, Rabbi of Moscow, that is not a small position. That's a pretty prominent position. <laughs> How did he go from no Russian to the Chief Rabbi of Moscow? So I think I think entrepreneurship is an appropriate word there. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and the circle closes. <laughs> but I think my parents identified a niche that wasn't being met. You know, there was no one in Russia with the sufficient, you know, Talmudic education to take that post. And no one from outside of Russia was crazy enough to go to Russia and, and, and take that on. So when my parents were there, they were pretty much the only people that fit that bill. And then they, they developed the community into what it is today. Can you talk about the Jewish community in Russia? Sure. So in the, in the first years after the perestroika, I would say up to 1995, everyone who felt Jewish or was connected to Judaism left the country. Um, there was mass emigration to Germany, USA, and Israel. And then the people who remained in Russia were usually much more assimilated, and, and the interest in Jewish life was minimal. So, so at that point, my parents' life shifted from sort of providing people with what they need to more of creating a community, answering the need, raising a new generation of children who know about the holidays, know about the heritage, and are interested in that. So my father says when when he came to Russia, there were like a number, a few 90-year-old men who like remembered the Yiddish of their childhood pre the, before the revolution. And, and today, like there are thousands of small kids running around and already children of people who graduated from my mother's school in the school. And that that's like, that's very inspiring. So it's funny, when my father, like everything was riddled with KGB and government officials. My father says that on one of his first Sabbaths before the sermon, a man came over to him and he said, do you see that man sitting in the third row? Don't speak to him. He's a KGB agent. And then about 10 minutes later, that person who was pointed out approached my father and he said, do you see that person? <laughs> He's a KGB agent. Oh Don't my speak God. Ah, the intrigue in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> and my father's response was, I believed both of them. <laughs> oh. So it's 
It was a very interesting environment to, to grow up in. I grew up in the Yeltsin years, the 90s. They were known as the crazy 90s, where there was a very strong mafia culture. It was sure. a, a very rural country, a bit like the Wild West, which communism fell apart, and everyone was trying to make it, both economically, you know, religiously, like the churches came to life. Like My father also says like he came to Russia and it was a communist country and he didn't meet a single person who didn't believe in some sort of deity. And people were killed on the streets, I remember. And we lived in the center of town and I remember walking out, if you walk out early enough in the morning, there were just dead people on the street who were beaten to death overnight. And that was... You saw that? Yeah. I don't know, as a child, I also remember, like, when I was 11 years old, there was one person who, um, you know, he was the sponsor of the community. He was a young guy. He came with his fiance, and she was like, gorgeous. <laughs> For a Friday night Shabbat dinner, and then the next Friday, I come home from school, and my mother's on the phone, and, and I hear her saying, what, what? Like, I knew something happened. He had been shot, like, seven bullets through his body because of a business dispute someone wanted him. And I, I was heartbroken. I was just, it, it, it was a very, I don't know, I feel like it makes you think about life in different terms, about risk in different terms. So so that was, but, but the democracy was there. Sort of people could say whatever they want, criticize the government. And then when Putin came to power in 2000, we, we felt the change in school. Like we made um, posters for one of the holidays. I guess it's the equivalent of the ha- Halloween for Purim. And we wanted to make all the characters of the story with different politicians. So we had Putin as the king. And it was like, it was taken down. We can speak in those terms. So also as a kid, those were things that, you know. Censored as a kid is maybe wow. an indicator there's a problem. So your your father wasn't hearing no. He was hearing threats, like on his new synagogue and potentially on his life or family. So, you know, how has that informed your understanding of the word no? Yeah, I think I think in a life where fundraising, you know, is a must because the community has been on my father's shoulders for over 25 years, um, you can't, he doesn't let things um, get very personal. I, there's another guy who came to Moscow a few years ago, and he has been extremely successful. He has, he has been probably the biggest business inspiration for me. So his, his mission was to sell his father's paintings, and he wanted to get him an exhibition in the Tretikov Gallery, which is the Met of Moscow. Um, sorry, that was in the Pushkin Museum. He, he couldn't get a meeting with the head of the museum. He stood outside her office from 9 to 5 for three months every single day, and finally she stepped out of her office and she said, what do I do to stop you from coming here? And he said, meet with me and see my father's paintings. So since then, he has sold his paintings to the president of Russia to, <laughs> he's had solo exhibitions in the Trechikov Gallery at the Pushkin Museum, and he's just, he does not know what no means. And this is a relentlessness that you learned from. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah. I, I, I think of that every time I hear no. Like, I, I, I feel like, you know, before I started Stern, you know, when people would say, you're not supposed to go into that room, you're not supposed to do that, your grade is X. Like, I viewed that as, that's your grade. And and I very much learned that just because someone's older, just because in some, someone's in a position of power, it doesn't mean they're smarter than you, it doesn't mean they necessarily have the power, and it doesn't mean that their no is a real no. So you could go around, you could find different channels. I think, I think it's made me um, appear maybe meaner sometimes. I don't think that's the worst thing for a person who wants to who wants to do stuff in life. You know, there there will be people who you won't want to cross paths with, and there will be people who don't want to cross yours, and that's fine. We call that scrappy. Yeah, we call that assertive. Then you get stuff done. 
So can I ask you a question about being 15 and 16? And then it sounded like you left your home, right? It sounds like you didn't continue there. I did. So Russia had, um, at that point, and they're changing the system now, uh, there were only 11 years of school. And a lot of people skipped fourth grade, which was what I did as well. However, they started school a year later. You missed some good arts and crafts projects. <laughs> I really did. You yep. have no idea how, how that has impacted my life. Yeah, fourth grade's <laughs> when the good ones happen. So my mother always thought we would move back to the West. So she put me into school at six. And then I ended up staying there. So I graduated from high school at 15, which was pretty awesome. It was sort of a joint decision at that point to, to get more of a religious education because until then, pretty much all of the education I received was from my parents, or people taught directly by my parents, and my parents wanted me to have more exposure. So I, I went to this place in England called Gateshead. It's right near Newcastle, if people know the European football team. Or the Brown Ale. <laughs> yes. Is that there? Yeah, Newcastle yeah. Brown Ale. I assume it's in Newcastle. <laughs> So it's, it's the end of the world. If, like, you wonder where the end of the world is, that's it. You have to, there are no direct flights there. You have to fly to London, take it's a plane, get world? on a train. Yes. There, it takes forever to get there. What else is at the you end know. of the world? I imagine piles of VCRs. You know, <laughs> I haven't thought about that. That's probably truly in the end of the world. I think it, I, isn't it a pot of gold? That's a rainbow. Why? <laughs> but I imagined a rainbow at the end of the world. Because of your positive outlook on life, which I, is one of my favorite things about you. <laughs> okay, so you're at the end of the world. So I'm at the end of the world. And, and Okay, so that school was pretty much a nunnery. Uh, I guess the Jewish equivalent of a nunnery. It was called Jewish Teachers Training College. There were about 470 women and seven male rabbis teaching the women. And the idea was you're being trained to, to be a teacher. You weren't allowed to have a cell phone, so there were phone booths, but there were two phones for 40 girls. It was just very isolating, um, and I didn't have any family nearby. It was, yeah. So I spent a year and a half there, and after that, I went to the U.S. Um, to you said not for me. Not for me. To UCB University. Um, it wasn't right for you. No. That's what's important. Right. I think it was right for a lot of people. And I that's mean, fine. Whatever. So you came to the U.S., yeah. and um, where did you end up? I ended up in a place called Yeshiva University, which was an Orthodox university. And so, how was how Yeshiva University? So for me, it was, it, it was an eye-opening experience. I, I got involved with the newspaper, with the playwright. I became vice president of the largest student council. I was drunk with all of the opportunity. I took every class that looked interesting. I was, I was in seventh heaven. To me, it was like breaking out of jail. Oh, you were drunk with knowledge? Yes. Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Ah, drunk on enthusiasm. I was enthused. <laughs> Heavily enthused. <laughs> but, you know, it's a very different, even that's a very different environment than Stern, you know, where you came from. So you've, you've you know, been continuing to just bring yourself into new and different environments. Are, is that challenging? Has that been challenging? I think it's more exciting than challenging for me. I feel like if I, if I don't experience something new for long enough, I'm always, I'm always thinking about the next step. And, and my next level of growth. So, And this is your first time in the States. Well, well I mean, you've been here right, right, for was, a long time. But. Yeah. Wow. The, the culture in the States. Oh, my God, the consumerism, the customer service, all those luxuries. It was crazy. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I loved America. Do you remember sort of some highlights from your first few months here that really stick out? Yes. So, I mean, Stern College, Yeshiva University, was on 34th Street in Lexington. 
So I remember the M&M store and just the amount of M&Ms and going into Forever 21 and thinking, I'm not even 21 yet, but I'm not going to be 21 forever. It's such a cool <laughs> name for a store. And, what an amazing but, place. <laughs> <laughs> and complaining about something was wrong with my phone service. And they were like, no problem. We'll give you this and an extra this. And I'm like, why are people so nice? Are people smiling in the store? I, I remember thinking that New York was the friendliest place on earth, and New Yorkers, you know, people coming from other places in the states, do not feel that way at all. But everyone, they're they're wrong. It's the friendliest place on earth. <laughs> I think it proves that everything is relative. Everything is relative. Frank yeah. lives in Hoboken. <laughs> Let me just preface that. <laughs> which which is the happiest place on earth? I think. Yeah, and just so you know, Hoboken's where the rainbow starts. You're kidding me. It's beautiful. Well, that's when it ends in Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> the beginning of the world and the end of the world. It, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, Hoboken's where it starts, Newcastle's where it ends, everything else, just a grade of faking it in between. <laughs> the little leprechauns popping <laughs> around. Oh, wow. When I got to Yeshiva, there was a town hall meeting with the president of the university, and students were complaining. They were raising their hands and saying, you know, there aren't enough resources for the advancement of women in the Orthodox community. You're not doing this right. The men have swimming. Why don't we have swimming? And I was like, are they nuts? What? First of all, I was shocked that they're allowed to complain. And secondly, I was like, do they realize what they have? Like, in Gateshead, we were eight girls in a room with, like, two shelves to a girl. And, like, you don't complain because you say thank you for everything you have. So that change was just monumental. Of course, I learned how to complain in no time. <laughs> so, it's, it's funny how quickly you adjust. <laughs> Excellent. Well done. It's an essential skill. Yeah. Well, that's how you get what you want. What does the future hold for you? Because in hearing your story, you've grown, expanded, and learned. You found your flow spot. You've, you, you're in love with innovation and stuff. But what's next for you? I can't wait to find out. Oh, what a good, uh, what a good, like, punchy answer for a... <laughs> and we'll leave it there, <laughs> folks. And after the commercial break, we'll come back and talk about Esty and what she could do next. No, but seriously, what yeah. is the future, what do you want the future to hold? So, I'm desperate, and desperate might be a desperate word, but I am very much, I want to, I want to make it. I know that this, and I feel like I'm on the right path. You know, this app might be... A revolution in the way people shop and the way people dress it might not be but that I'm going to take all my learnings I'm going to take it to the next level there I think my struggle for personal freedom um, of expression and, and and the fight for like just to be myself is probably going to like I want to be myself just more so does that make sense yeah that'll be your life's work that'll be my life's work you know people have said a lot of things on the show but that may make the most sense. I just learned something, so yeah. We you. always and we always aim to learn something. Esty, we cannot thank you enough for coming in to talk to us today. It was just an absolutely wonderful experience. This was a blast. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry. You know, it's the radio. People can't see how emphatic you are when I you know. tell a story. You know, did you have fun though? I had the best time. Oh, that's what's important. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Well, me and Sherry, we, well, me and Sherry always have fun. That's a oh, yeah, given. This conversation will keep me thinking for a while. Good. Oh, great. That's the whole goal. Ugh. There you go, guys. Stern Chats, conversations that keep you thinking. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>